Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Two weeks ago, we began a series entitled A People of Worship. Don began by looking at the life of David as a worshipper and the pattern that he established in his life in regard to this so that he was a faithful worshiper. Last week, Stephen looked at the pursuit of worship and that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. And can I encourage you to, if you haven't heard these two messages, to go back and to listen to them because these are not five standalone messages as it were in in the subject of a people of worship. They weave and they merge together and the five together give us a picture or a call to be a people of worship. Today, in a continuation of this series, we're going to look at the power of worship. Today, we look at the role of worship as a weapon in the arsenal of the believer as we engage in spiritual battle, in a spiritual warfare that we are all involved in. Whether we know it, whether we really want to be part of it, or whether we realize it, we are engaged in a spiritual battle, in spiritual warfare, and worship is a weapon. The Christian life is not like a battle. The Christian life is a battle. And it's important, therefore, that we know what weapons are available to us in this warfare. So we're going to start this evening by looking at Psalm 149. It says these words, praise the Lord, or hallelujah, as it would have been in the Hebrew. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute Vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the judgment written. This is the honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Again, hallelujah. This psalm begins and ends with a very simple command to praise the Lord, to raise a hallelujah and everything else in between is about what happens when we respond to this call to hallelujah. Call to praise, tailed by call to praise, everything else will happen when these things are taking place. Some of these are quite clear and obvious, but there are some things in this psalm that one might think, depending on what lens you look through it or what tradition you come from, what on earth are we talking about in this passage about a call to praise, and we're talking about irons and fetters, kings and countries, beds, and two-edged sword. What is this to do with our call to worship? In most aspects of our relationship with God, there is always more than meets the eye. There is always more going on than what we see on the surface. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that we do not see, we do not judge things in the natural because they are temporary and subject to change. But he says we need to see things through the eyes of faith. For when we see through the eyes of faith, we see what is eternal, we see what is permanent, we actually see the reality of what is happening in our world today. As you probably will know, there are two spheres. There is the natural sphere and the supernatural. And when it comes to worship, there are things that are going on in the natural level and we all understand it. In the natural sphere, we know, we can see, we can comprehend. When worship is taking place, there is singing. There is a physical response. There is a physical posture response to that worship, whether it be raising of hands, standing, kneeling, clapping, and so much more. Then there's the instrumental part of worship, which we see in front of us. But there are also things going on in the exact same time in the eternal, unseen, and spiritual realm, which we may or may not realize. But as sure as we are here tonight, as sure as we have engaged in worship this evening, there has been things going on in the unseen spiritual realm, taking place we do not know that much of. This is crucial because if we only accept, if we only see what is going on in the physical, we will view God, we will view worship through the lens of a consumer. We'll come to that in a moment. Do I like worship? Oh, I don't get involved in worship. Worship's not for me. But if we see through the eyes of faith, if we understand what is going on, that a battle is really being waged for our worship and in our worship, we will not simply relate to worship as a consumer. We will become so fascinated by what is happening that our eyes will become fixed on he who sits on the throne, he who is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he is our savior and he has defeated the enemy. If we only look at the natural, we will fail to see that. But if, as a consequence, if we do see those things that are going on at the same time, we will go from being a consumer to being the consumed being consumed by the fascination and the wonder and the awesomeness of his majesty, being consumed by the power of God's presence, being consumed by his love, being consumed by the fact that warfare is taking place as we worship. That God has given us in our arsenal as the people of God a tool, a weapon that I believe many of us fail to recognize and if we do recognize that we fail to see and take it up and simply through neglect, we do not understand or get involved with this warfare. You see, in the Christian world, we have so many preferences about worship. Even here today, some of you may say, well, I don't really like worship. Oh, I don't really wanna get into worship too much. It's not my scene. Today or tonight, some of you on the way home may actually say, you know, worship was okay today. I didn't like that one song that they, they, they sang. You know, I thought last week's worship was better. You know, so-and-so has got a better voice than he or she. If this happens, then we are consumers. We do not really truly understand the depth and the majesty and the awesomeness of what worship is. If that is your experience, I would hasten to say that you are a consumer. We are blessed in the broader church to have a variety of styles of worship, from 
high church with large pipe organs that can be beautiful and powerful. When Handel's Messiah is played, you can almost feel that you're in the throne room of God. There is something so majestic about it. Some people have a preference for electric guitars and drums, whilst others like the simple acoustic or a piano or an organ. One of the thrills that I had in my previous, I was gonna say previous life, in my previous job was, it took me to South America a number of times and I would love to go into a Latin church and you would have trumpets, you would have trombones, you would have tubers and you would not be a guitar in sight and it was absolutely so incredible. But this is all to do with preferences and if we only worship through this lens, we are, in, we are in deep trouble because we are viewing worship as to how it affects us. But this is only one dimension of worship is. I personally like most types of worship. I love the ancient, the modern, the old, the new, the choruses and hymns. But it is only part of it. But if we are not careful, it becomes the whole for many of us. Well, I didn't like that worship or I didn't like that. If that's where we are, then it's become our whole. Worship, when we really drill down and throw open the whole of Scripture, should, it should not be about my preferences, your preferences, but his preference. What does God want? Jesus t- tells us what God wants in John 4, 23, which Stephen touched upon last week. And it says that God is looking for worshipers in spirit and in truth. So therefore, one of the facets of worship I believe we sometimes forget is that when we worship, this warfare is taking place. Sometimes it's taking, something is taking place in the heavenly, something is happening in the unseen realm, that at any given moment in our lives, whether we are on our own, in our homes, in the car, or at work, or in a congregation like this evening, worship is the weapon for whatever battle we are facing right now. I hope by the end of this evening that you find yourself in a battle of a situation that one of the weapons that you will choose to use is worship. That we, at any given moment, have this gift, have this weapon that the Lord has given us, that we can lift praises to him, and when we do warfare over situation, walls start to come down. Giants are slain. Obstacles are removed and overcome. And freedom can come into our lives and into the lives of others. Our worship is warfare. And I want us to look what that means for us today in tangible, tangible terms. Psalm 149 tells us that our worship is an offering to the Lord. This is where warfare begins. Psalm 116 verse 17 says, I will offer to you a thanksgiving sacrifice and call on the name of the Lord. I'm sure that we would all agree that worship is God-centered, that worship is a gift to him as we lay down our lives and our minds. It is an offering that we make to him. But please make no mistake about it. It is as we worship, the enemy does not want you to worship. He does not want us to give God our hearts and our affection. The devil wants our worship, and God wants our worship. And it is up to us who determines who gets 
all that we are. When we talk about worship being offered to the enemy, he is, asked, he is not asking us to overtly worship himself, uh, but that is actually what he did to Jesus. And if we look at the example very quickly of that, that invitation, it helps us get an insight what he wants to do for us. You see, Satan took Jesus up a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan said to him, all these I will give to you, all the glories of this kingdom, of these kingdoms, all the world has to offer, I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. You may think it's, it's crazy to think that the devil tempted the Son of God and what he tempted him with was the kingdoms of the earth. But there was a real reason behind it. There was a subtlety behind it. There was quite an innovative thought pattern behind it. Because if you read back in Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9, we get this insight as to why that was happening. Psalm 2 says, He said to me, God said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's here, it's here we realize it was the nations that Jesus had come to win. The way that he won them was by sacrificially laying down his life on the cross of Calvary so that he could win out of every nation a people for himself by his own blood. What the enemy was doing was saying to Jesus exactly this, you know, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. There is a shortcut and I will give you everything you want if you will worship me. And we know the end of that argument. But you see, now in our own lives, the devil will really show up and directly ask us to worship him. That will very seldom happen. But what he will offer us are turnoffs, are side roads on the highway to being a people of worship. And he promises that if we turn off here, if we take a shortcut there, he will give us what we really want. Just don't move in the direction of worship. If I can distract you, if I can deflect you, that's what I will want to do. So you don't really have to pursue worship like God lays down in scripture. I'll give you a shortcut. The most profound, aggressive act of warfare that we can make as believers is to be worshippers, to seek his face in the midst of the world that offers us everything that we have been convinced will make us happy and successful. Money, power, prestige, happiness, joy, pleasure, significance, success. So often we get caught up on the side roads of seeking those things that when we got them, then we will be worshippers. Or those are more important really than pursuing the things that we really know that God has for us. You see, if we just don't give God our whole heart, our whole heart and our whole mind, then Satan is delighted. You see, the greatest commandment of all is to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and with all our strength. These invitations from the enemy are attempts to steal our all. Because if we give God 80%, then the enemy has been effective in stealing 
our all. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There is power in giving our worship to God as an offering and not utilizing worship as something that we pick and mix and choose to use and be involved in when we want to. Sometimes we don't realize that when we worship, the, wor- the weapon of our worship brings about the deliverance to other people. Worship is not just about you and me. That is when scripture is pretty clear on the gathering together of God's people and we'll unpack it in a couple of moments that when we worship, it affects other people and other people get influenced. I want us to look for a few moments at Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas have been arrested for preaching the gospel and they were thrown into jail. The jails that were in existence then are nothing like the jails that we have today. They would have been absolutely hellish compared to what we have today. You are safe in jail. You get fed in jail. You are generally warm in jail. You can be educated and there is a great possibility that you will come out the other side. The jails in the times of the Romans and therefore Acts 16 were rat infested and they were dug out of holes. You were chained to the wall. Your feet were shackled and the only chance you had of eating was if friends and family brought food to the jails to you. Suicide, historians tell us, was the major cause of, cause of death in these jails due to the terrible conditions. They were often known as torture chambers because of the hellishness that they brought upon people. Imagine having chains like this holding you. This is a medieval um, print of an early Roman uh, prison and there's a little bit of license up here in the top right, but the rest of it's really, really accurate. You were chained like this. You were chained to each other. Your feet were chained. Sometimes your, your hands were chained. If you're a guy, sometimes your genitals were chained. This was all that was going on. This is exactly the same thing that was happening here in Acts 16 and Paul and Silas in this incredible situation. This is where they were at shackling one's feet to the ground so you couldn't move, all compounded by the fact that you were probably changed to other prisoners. And when they moved, you had to move. When, you were dis- when they were disturbed, you were disturbed. This is not some clean, sanitized jail where you were looked after. And so this is where Paul and Silas are, where insects and animals crawl all over you, all behind closed doors that won't open for you despite your protestations. And there is no hope. And Paul and Silas, verses 25 and 26, this is what we, we, uh, has been recorded for us. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing, singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. The other prisoners are wondering why Paul and Silas are in jail. I wonder what they did. You know, it's about midnight, it's pitch black and you're all alone thinking about your family, thinking about the regret, about the things that you wish were different in your life. You wish you could rewind your life and go back and undo some of the things you have done in your life that will get you out of this mess. You know, midnight in jail is the most 
hopeless hour. It's just not a coincidence. With my work, I often, not end up, I often visit Spring Hill, go to Waikiria, and I just sit and talk with guys that have been connected with this church over the years, and we sit and we talk, and they all will say there's something about the bewitching hour of midnight, that you're not really halfway through the night, it's the darkest, it's the quietest. There's something about midnight that gives you the sense of hopelessness like nothing else. It's the time when you're full of regrets, full of fear, full of worry, you can't sleep and you wonder how your family truly, truly is. Then out of the darkness, you hear two voices. It says they began to pray and sing praises. You know, if anyone had a reason not to be in the worshiping mood, it was Paul and Silas. How many of us are culpable of saying, you know, I don't feel, really feel like worshiping today. You know, I'll go along to church, but I really don't, you know, I mean, I'm not that enthusiastic. Has anyone had one of those days, one of those moments, a day when we felt that we were tired, bound, going nowhere, not seeing any breakthrough? Today, I just don't feel like worshiping. God, I don't really feel like going to church. There's no chance that I'm gonna raise my hallelujah. Not going to raise my hands for the day. My heart is full of anxiety and worry and I could just get past where I'm at. Maybe things will change. But here are Paul and Silas in jail for doing the right thing. So they prepared to worship and to declare his awesomeness. And instead of allowing the circumstances that caused them to be in this jail to affect them, they began to worship, they began to pray together and other prisoners were listening. I'm sure that some of them were really, really upset with these guys. Those, imagine those who'd fallen asleep. Then you get these two Pentecostal nutters starting to sing at midnight. It says that about midnight, suddenly the foundations of the jail began to shake and that the chains that had held Paul and Silas fell off. The prison doors fell open, not just Paul and Silas's, but all the prison doors were opened and there was a mass exodus from the jail. At the worst possible moment, at the darkest hour of the day, with prisoners most deserving to be in jail, where regret is, where regret is the overwhelming emotion, it takes two believers, two believers full of the Spirit of God with worship as a priority, who accept and know that worship is warfare, who understand the power of worship in every circumstance, even when they're shackled, even when they're not in the mood, even when they feel down and grumpy and that God is doing nothing, they begin to lift up their praise to God and something happens in the spiritual realm that broke even physical bonds of these prisoners. Even those who didn't deserve it, became the recipients of the breakthrough of the believers who understood their weapons. Freedom and liberty comes through worship. This story in history recorded for us in the Bible is not unique. In my opinion, it sets a precedent. It's not just a nice story. It sets a precedent of what can be done because everywhere we go, as we recognize that we are a carrier of the presence of God, the weapon that he has given to us is worship. And when things are darkest, when we think that there is no reversal of the decisions that we have made in our lives, if we choose to worship God, it will not only change us, 
it will affect the people around us. If you are a consumer today, you will only think about yourself in worship. But if you are consumed by the fact that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and there is a spiritual realm and there's a fight going on for our lives, when you worship, you realize that other people around you in that eternal realm are being affected and God is bringing breakthrough into their situation. We can be, if we're not careful, the most selfish of people because when it becomes about us, then we lose something. When we come into a gathering, we have a number of choices to choose from. There are some of us who will come 6.30, let's go, let's worship. Let's get into this, let's come together. Let's worship who he is, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then there are some who'll come in and they'll wander down and it'll be goodness knows what, when the rest of us have been worshiping for 10, 15 minutes and they'll come in and they'll say, oh man, let's just get to the word. That's the real thing about the service. That's the main meat of why we're here. We want to hear God's word. And there, there'll be those that'll just stand around and be curious about what is going on. When we walk into a gathering, whether we know it or not, we have been invited to be part of someone else's miracle where their prison doors are thrown open and chains fall to the ground. Often it is when we come with a heart ready to worship. It is in those moments that we feel God the most. When we fully engage in an eternal process, when we're saying, I don't want to do this, but I am going to sacrifice my praise. I'm going to worship him. And I want to get into this because I see not all my preferences, but I see something in the eternal realm, then something happens. You know, Colossians 3.16 tells us something about what happens when we take our place. It says these words, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts, sing praises, hymns and spiritual songs to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word admonishing here is used in the Greek, that is used in the Greek is a simple word called natheo, but it can be used in two different ways. Firstly, to admonish, and in our English, we usually think of admonish to warn or to tell off, which in this context doesn't make a whole lot of sense. However, in the Greek, it can also mean to exhort, to instruct, to build up, and if we use that, Word, that wording, it makes a whole lot of sense. It can read like this, exhort one another with all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts. You exhort people when you have gratitude in your hearts. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together. It means to exhort, encourage, lift one another. Let's be in this together as a group of people. The Bible says when we sing and when we worship, we are strengthening and encouraging one another. We are helping to fight one another's battle because we see in a realm that other people don't see. We're seeing in a completely different realm. And if we don't, then we're withholding something from our brothers and sisters. We are joining together in this encouragement, helping to fight 
other people's battles in such an individualistic society, I think that is one of the greatest promises and thrills and dynamics of worship that should encourage us on. We are lifting up those hands that are weak. We are seeing other people's chains start to drop off because we want to be a people of worship. Our worship is defeat for the enemy. Psalm 149 verses 7 to 9 again says these words, Let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nation and punishments on the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the, the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. You see, when it talks about kings and leaders and nations, it's not talking about kings and nations and rulers that are in charge of literal countries today. What the psalmist is talking about here is what Ephesians refer- Paul references in Ephesians 6 verse 12 when he says, our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in high places. What we are doing here, what we, when we respond to Psalm 149, it's about talking about spiritual rulers. It's talking about demonic principalities. It's talking about demonic powers that we have a role in defeating through our worship. Just by standing in an act of worship and worshiping him, they begin to fall. Ultimately, they have been defeated in the work of the cross, but we have a a role in bringing them down. And when we worship, we affect principalities, demonic powers of darkness that rule this earth today. And we have this incredible role of helping pushing back the forces of darkness in situations around us. We are declaring when we worship that we're not giving our attention to what is going on around us or that fear that dictates that we have to be nervous or that fear that came with us in the car. We're saying, my future and my hope is in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I'm not gonna give attention to those things that I've got planned after I get away from here tonight. I'm not responding to my tired body that I've been doing things and I come here tonight and I'm just too tired to worship. You know, I'm not going to respond to that says, oh, man, I just haven't got it in me tonight. I am going to worship because I want to join with the hosts of believers as we see kingdoms and principalities of darkness come down. There is a king in the Old Testament, and his name is Jehoshaphat. He was king when a conspiracy of nations was coming against Israel, and the army of Israel was the Enormously outnumbered, maybe as many as 10 to 1, historians tell us. And there was a fear throughout the nation of Israel. Jehoshaphat responded, and it says he set his heart to seek the Lord and to call a fast in the land. See, God responds, and through a prophet, he gives Jehoshaphat promises, but also a challenge to how he should respond. 2 Chronicles 20 verse 12 says this, Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment upon them? For we are powerless against the great multitude that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. You know, but our eyes are on you. Jehoshaphat is needing God to execute, to come good. I need you to defend us from those who are threatening our inheritance in you. God, are you there? Because we are powerless. 
You know, many of us often feel powerless and outnumbered and find ourselves in situations where it feels that the enemy is coming against us at a 10 to 1 ratio and there is no way in our own strength that we can defeat him. And we, like Jehoshaphat, say, I do not have the strength to get out of this situation. You know, they were in exactly the same position as often we find ourselves. But this is what he says in verse 15. He says, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed at this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Sometimes I think that we need to realize that not every battle that we face here on earth is ours. God wants to intervene. He wants to segue into our lives and make a difference. He wants to change situations. And this is God speaking to the kings. He says, don't set your eye on the enemy, for the battle is not yours, but it is mine. And then verse 17 says this, this battle is not for you to fight. Take your position, stand still, and see the victory of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. We keep going. So here is what Jehoshaphat did. He got the whole army together on the front line and he has a revelation of the power of praise and this is what he does. If you've never read this passage in 2 Chronicles, I just encourage you to do so. It says, when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy splendor, and they went out before the army. And this is what they said. Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And if I can put it like this, and instead of putting the SAS or the Navy SEALs on the front line or the commandos, he changes everything around. This is a true story in history. He takes the priests and the Levites and the musicians and he puts them on the front line. And he says, we are going out to go against this enemy and before we trust in our own skillfulness of hand or our own experience, our own strength, we're gonna look to you, God, and to your presence. He wants the worship leaders out front and he wants them marching against the enemy. And then verses 21 and 22 says this, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise the Lord, the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites, Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. Imagine for a moment that you were the commander of the opposing army and you outnumber Israel 10 to 1 and you discover that dear, dear, dear Jehoshaphat, has put his best soldiers to the back of the line and the worship leaders are out the front and they're there with their amps and their electric guitars and their earpieces and they come to the front because of the worship team leaders and they're out in front and you're watching all this going on and you think, he has lost his marbles. He has gone crazy. Instead of them charging with bows and arrows, chariots and spears, tanks and machine guns. You see, these people whose eyes are not even looking at them, 
but looking to the Lord of hosts, they start to say that the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. My eyes are not on my enemy, on the obstacles, but are on you, Lord. You are the helper from whom my help comes. You are my shepherd and I will not want. You are the maker of heaven and earth and I'm going to engage in what you want me to do because that is what your call upon our lives is about. <coughs> Scripture records for us that whilst they were worshiping God, God moves in and he confuses the enemy. He sets ambushes for them so that the enemy defeats one another. So when the Israelites eventually turn their eyes down from the Lord and they look to the ground, they see that the entire army before them has been defeated. When praise goes up from a people who know that they have a weapon of warfare, when they know that they have a role in the seen and the unseen role, uh, realm, when praise goes up, walls come down, enemies get defeated and situations get changed. Our praise and worship is a two-edged sword. With one sword, with one side of the sword, it's defeating the enemy because we refuse to give the enemy our attention, whilst the other, sword, other side is declaring that our future is in God and we will trust him. I don't know what change, what situations you find yourself in today. I don't know what needs to be broken off your life. But something starts to stir, something starts to happen when we choose to live a lifestyle of worship and warfare. When we truly see that our lives are worship every, every minute of every day. How do we land this? Time is gone. How do we go about this with shoes on? Let me give you a couple of quick examples. You know, one of the things that Don and I do on a, on a regular basis, we do it separately, but we will come here on the weekend and we will just come and worship over you. We will come and worship over you. And we'll say, Lord, wherever our Sunday night congregations find themselves in situations, we want to worship you over them. We want to declare your majesty. We want to declare your lordship. And we want to engage in warfare and worship on, on your behalf that you never even realize that we do. People or parents often ask us about raising kids. Well, one of the things that we, that Hope and I would do that when our kids were young, that when they were in the cots and then when they were in the beds fast asleep, we would go in, we would pray over them, but we would also just start to worship over them. We would start to come and declare who he is, his lordship, his sovereignty over their life. We would speak and sing his majesty over them. We would do warfare for them even when they were little children so that they would still be children of faith when they're in the 30s, 40s and 50s. And we would come and do warfare for them. We would say, give thanks to the Lord for his love and steadfast love endures forever. You know, I... This might be offensive, so please forgive me. <coughs> Often see families, and you think that the parents worship their kids. That's not wrong, but I'm not sure how healthy it is. Yes, you can adore them. Yes, they can be the apple of your eye. But this I do know, that as parents, as grandparents, as caregivers, as uncles and aunties, we can do warfare on behalf of our children by coming and worshiping over them, pushing back the works of hell and realizing if there is any worship involved in this relationship is we're gonna worship the King of Kings over these kids. 
And it really doesn't matter what school programs they get into. It really doesn't matter in the sense in the grand scheme of life. But if we have done worship, warfare over them, something happens for them in the heavenlies. And you can do that for your partner, your husband, your wife, whatever you do it. You know, <clears throat> tell you a secret. My kids, you'll know some, some of you will know them. I've grown up. They're married, and I still do it. I don't walk into their room at night and do anything weird <coughs> like that. I'm always in bed way before them. That's the definition of getting older, you know? Both grown up, and uh, as I say this, our daughter-in-law back in the, in, in the UK, today she is 39 and a half weeks pregnant. 39 and a half weeks pregnant. And we're soon to be grandparents, but you know, we still become before the Lord. And I give my family to them. This is what I do. I say, Lord, you're the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You can take what I'm about to do and you can do warfare for them. And I just line them up in my mind. Ben, Miriam, babe. You know, I have known for about 24, 25 weeks the gender of that baby and I've not told anyone. And here I am at 39 and a half weeks speaking about it and I need to be really careful. <laughs> ben, Miriam, babe, he or she, <laughs> Thomas and Megan. And I saw, say, Lord, what I'm going to do in the next 20 seconds, I want you to take us warfare for them. And I get down and I worship and I say, Lord, I don't know what situation they find them in, but I, as their dad, I'm going to do something that will change their circumstances because there are two realms. There's a natural realm and there's a supernatural realm and we want to fight for that. Weird? I don't think so. Because I know that as I offer my sacrifice of worship to him, he can take that and do warfare. After all, he is the creator God. Musicians, please come and join me. One final thought I'd like to suggest. You know, you've got to work this out where you're at. You may find yourself in a situation as a couple, as a family, whatever. It may be in work that you might just need to come and say, Lord, I don't know what's going to go on, but there's something that needs to break here in the spiritual realm. I'm going to worship you over it. And that guy might be absolutely crazy on Sunday night, but there was something of a kernel of truth that just resonated with me. And scripture, and I want to do that. One final thought. You know, it's always good to fill our homes with worship for many reasons. You know, so much death and darkness is, comes into our homes through our TVs, through our devices, through the slime of life that has attached itself to others when we have been out and about and through the people who visit. We had some work done in our house recently um, because I am the ultimate useless person at DIY. And we have had some people come in and do some stuff. You know, and I just felt God prompt me after they had gone, you need to worship through this house, son. You don't know who they are, where they come from. They're good craftsmen. You need just to worship over them. And you know, it's great to have your homes, great to have the houses filled with the atmosphere and songs of worship. But can I encourage you to do something different and take it a step further? Don't just listen to worship in your home. Actively get involved with it. Start to worship him over situations that you don't understand, of your kid's room, if you live on your own, just worship and invite him into, into every situation. Don't be passive in worship, but be active. People of worship who engage in warfare through worship. 
And I want to encourage you over this series to put these five together and watch and listen to them again on podcasts and the weaves a theme of what we are called to do because we function both in the natural and the supernatural realm. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.